Just one other announcement before we get into the sermon today. Uh, leadership nominations, elder deacon nominations are due tomorrow. We've been announcing that for a couple of weeks now through email, but just wanted to make a announcement just in case you, like some people, don't read the emails, right? Uh, be honest, all right? Uh, forget to read those, have too many in your inbox, but we've been announcing that on the emails, and so you can submit those by sending an email to me, or you can also, uh, you can put it in the box back there. You can write on the paper if you're a member. Just put down your name and the nominee's name on the paper for deacon or elder. Make sure you specify which one. We're back in John chapter 11, and last week we went all the way through John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44, and we're going to return to that same event, the same text, and we're going to talk through this one more time, but at a different angle. There's so much there and so much great. I encourage you, if you missed last week, go back and listen to the sermon from last week. We walk through and see Jesus as being the resurrection and the life and what that means, and there was so much great stuff. But today, like I said, we're going to cover it from a, a completely different angle that we didn't touch on last week. So let's pray, and we'll look in this passage, John 11. Father God, we thank you for the gospel of John. We thank you for your word, your scripture that show us and reveal to us your character, your heart, God. You didn't leave us here to figure out what you're like, but you gave us your word to teach us about yourself. And through Jesus Christ and him coming and living on this earth and dying and rising again, God, through that we see your character, your greatness. And so today, as we look at the life of Jesus, I pray this will encourage us, motivate us, and inspire us to be more like you in areas of our life that sometimes we struggle to find the right balance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to kind of hop through a little bit just to set the context. And so let's start back in verse 1, chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So last week we saw that Jesus received the news of Lazarus's death, and Jesus, from the very beginning, he planned to go and raise Lazarus from the grave, right? That was his intention from not only the beginning of this passage, but beginning of all eternity. Sovereign God, he knew what he was going to do, but Jesus' intentions were clear. In verse 3, we see that. So when the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so at this point, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, we're not in a hurry, guys. We're not going right away. And he actually delays for a couple days before he finally looks at them and says, okay, now let's go to Bethany. Let's go see Lazarus because he's asleep. All right. And they're like, asleep? All right. If he's asleep, he's going to be okay, Jesus. And he says, finally, in verse 14, he just has to say it plainly, Lazarus has died, okay? He's gone, he's dead. So he tells his disciples what he learned supernaturally, what he knows supernaturally. Nobody's told him this, according to the text, that Lazarus has passed away. So at this point, and, and during these conversations, he thinks he's not fast-tracking it to see Lazarus. And we really laid this out last week, and it's important to see that Jesus, what his agenda was, what his purpose was for his delay was so he wanted to be sure that everyone knew that Lazarus was actually truly dead when he got there and performed the greatest miracle that he had performed up to this point. And so he delayed so there would be no doubt 
that Lazarus had truly, truly passed away. We talked about that and talked about some of the rabbis, what they believed, and so I encourage you to go back and listen to that. It's pretty interesting what Jesus was really, his agenda was there. So once Jesus arrived, Lazarus' sister Mary eventually made it out to meet with him uh, outside of the town, and he, she comes out with some other friends who were grieving, and look how Jesus responded to her in verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come up with her also weeping, here's what Jesus responded. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see, verse 35, Jesus wept. And then if you skip down to verse 38, when Jesus had come to the tomb, he was deeply moved again. And so picture this, okay, get this. Jesus knew from the very beginning again that this event would not lead to Lazarus' ultimate death. He was going to, it was going to pass through death, but he was not going to end in death. So the question we ask ourselves is, why was Jesus emotional? Why did he show emotion? Why was he deeply troubled? Why did he weep when he heard this news? We're going to answer that question in just a minute. But let's think about emotions for a second. Emotions are an interesting thing. In the English language alone, there are over 400 words to describe different kinds of emotions. It's a big thing. Emotions are big. We have over, scientists say, that we have over... 10,000 subtle facial expressions that can express our emotions, 10,000. So having emotions is a universal experience. You experience emotions, even if you come across as the most stoic person possible, probably last night during those games, you were emotional, right? Maybe you didn't show it like some people, you weren't throwing things at the TV set, but you were emotional inside, all right? You experience emotions, I experience emotion, and Jesus experienced emotions. And what does it tell us about God? God revealed himself to humanity through Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us, in fact, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And listen to this. He's the exact representation of his being in Hebrews 1.3. So God became flesh. God came to this earth with skin on the all-powerful, sovereign creator of the universe in the form of a playful, laughing little boy in first century Nazareth on the dusty streets. He came, God came, he chose to come in this way in order to deliver us from our sins. And so in John 10, we saw a few weeks ago that Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That was a huge statement. It almost got Jesus stoned. The fact that they wanted to kill him over the fact that he said he and the Father are one. And Philip in chapter 14 will ask Jesus about, show us the Father, Jesus. And Jesus tells him, anyone who's seen me, if you're looking at me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus reveals the full nature, character, values, principles, and priorities of God. And William Barclay writes that in the ancient world, the Greek concept of God was one of total inability to feel any emotion whatsoever. The Greeks believed in this isolated, passionless, compassionate, compassionless God. So a God who showed no compassion, no passion at all. And this is definitely not the God of the Bible, as we see clearly in Jesus who came 
to show us and represent God and reveal God to us. So one of the differences between God's emotions, of course, and our emotions is that God's emotions are always rooted in his holy nature, and they're always expressed in a way that's completely sinless, unlike us as broken, flawed human beings that sometimes we just lose control. Our emotions can be all over the place. But for those who follow Jesus, and that's most of you in here claim to follow Jesus, it's critical to see that Jesus expressed emotions representing God and how Jesus and why Jesus expressed the emotions that he did. Why is that important for us to understand? Let's go to 2 Corinthians 3.18. This will be on the screen, or you can flip over there. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul writes this. He says, And we all, all believers, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul has been referencing Exodus 34, and he's describing the face, the countenance, the skin of Moses after meeting with God that he came down and he shone. His face shined from being with God. And so Paul shows that God, for Christians, removes this veil between us and him, and so that when we, we can come to Jesus by faith, and in those moments, we are being, through this revelation of Christ, and being able to come to Jesus face to face, that we're being spiritually transformed. So the spiritual revelation results in our spiritual transformation. As you meet with Jesus, those who get up every day and spend time with Jesus in the Word and in prayer, something's happening there. You are going to Jesus Paul's words with an unveiled face, and you look at Jesus, you see Jesus in his glory, and you're being transformed more and more into his likeness. So Jesus is changing us. He's changing you. And I know a lot of times it doesn't feel like you're being changed because of the incremental nature, but he says in the passage, Paul nails it by saying from one degree to another. We're being transformed, we're being sanctified, changed to be more and more like Jesus as we behold his glory. That's one of the really great reasons you need to establish a habit of being with Jesus each day in the Word and in prayer because you represent Jesus. And oftentimes we overlook this idea of emotions. We look, overlook this idea of how Jesus responded because we think, one, guys, we think a lot of times showing certain emotions is a sign of weakness, and we've really never thought about how Jesus expressed his emotions. And so what can we learn about Jesus and his emotions in John chapter 11? So as John said in 1 John, we can walk the way that Jesus walked. So Jesus was emotionally moved by the pain Lazarus' sisters were experiencing. He was emotionally moved by the pain that they were experiencing. Look at verse 33 again. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, meaning inside, he had this, he was deeply moved and he was greatly troubled. Now, when we read those words, that most, most of us have the impression that Jesus was overwhelmed with empathy, sorrow, and grief. But many commentators, including one that I like, D.A. Carson, points out that there is no logistic, logistic, justification for the actual Greek words that are used here. 
It's actually used to soften this into the English language. Because what really is saying here in the text is that Jesus was angry. Okay? Jesus was angry in this moment. Why in the world would Jesus be angry inside, in his spirit? Why would his inward reaction be one of outrage and indignation? And as D.A. Carson points out, why does our Bible's translations soften that? And, and as I was looking through various versions of the Bible, of all places, the message paraphrase of the Bible is one of the few English translations which translate Jesus' emotions as anger. It'll be on the screen. It says, when Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. So why in the world was Jesus angry in this moment? when he's there with the family who are grieving. A couple options. Some think that Jesus was so moved by their grief, and as a result, he's angry with sin, he's angry with sickness, he's angry with the fact that sin leads to death, and in this fallen world we live in, that sin and death wreck so much havoc and bring so much sorrow into our lives. You can relate to that, right? You can relate to that. You know that when you've attended a funeral of a loved one or a friend and you see the grief and the sorrow, it should bring some anger in your heart. And while at times we don't think about that emotion, but that's not the way that God originally intended for this world to be. And then the second option is others think this anger is really more directed to the unbelief itself. The fact that these ladies and the Jews just doubted Jesus, does not have faith in Jesus, his ability to do things. And maybe that's the case. You know, Scripture is clear that men and women who follow Jesus, we don't have to grieve like the world grieves. The, the world grieves in a way where there's no hope. There's no hope for the afterlife. There's no hope to see our loved ones and friends who know Jesus again. So they grieve with no hope. And, of course, severe grief is very natural but when we allow that grief to just degenerate into this hopelessness and this feeling of despair, it's a really a practical denial of the resurrection that Jesus provides. And so the two options, he's mad at sin, he's angry at sin, he's angry at that, that sin brought death into the world, and then he's angry at the unbelief that is being shown here and the lack of faith that is being revealed and shown in, into Jesus and his ability to do anything about this situation. But I don't think these two are compatible. I think both are true. Jesus' anger is directed at spiritual death and its effects of sin and also the demonstrations of unbelief of those whom Jesus said that he loves. That this anger is towards sin and the fact that this should not be the case. We should not have to be in, in, in the way that God intended the world, this should not have to be happening. And Jesus sees this sorrow and this brokenness, and it moves him to anger over the sin. And also, why are you believing that me as creator God and in the very image of God could not do something in this situation? Back way back in 1 John chapter 1, when we started the series, in verse 4 and 5, John writes, In him, and Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus comes into this world that is dark by sin, and, and sin just wrecked havoc on this world, and death and sorrow are everywhere. And Paul nails it when he says in Romans 8 that the world's groaning. It's groaning under 
the effects of sin. And it's waiting for this redemption to happen. And so due to sin, all of creation is distorted from its original design. And one commentator writes that Jesus was angry because he found himself face to face with the manifestations of Satan's kingdom of darkness and evil. And I think that's true. He sees what Satan has done in this world and the havoc through sin that has happened. And so Jesus grieves deeply over sin and the wages of sin, which we know is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. You know, I honestly used to think this. I used to think, I don't understand why we as human beings don't get used to death, right? Like we celebrate life, but as soon as somebody is born, we know it's inevitable that they're going to die, right? Like that's just going to happen. We know that everyone who's ever lived on this earth has died, except for a few people mentioned in Scripture. And Jesus obviously rose from the dead. Even Lazarus, who died and was rose, rose again through Jesus' power, he eventually died again. We die. And so death is as much part of life as birth. And everyone dies, so why don't we accept this? And, but after, I think, many funerals, and many being by the bedside of those who are grieving loved ones and hurting, I realized that death feels wrong and death feels unnatural because it is. It is unnatural and it is wrong. It, from the beginning, God did not create death. Life was to lead into life, an eternal life, everlasting life. And so it really changed my perspective and what I say at funerals because it, we'll never, ever get used to it. It's always going to be unnatural. It's not okay that people die. And so Jesus was angry at sin that's brought death into this world. But not just that, but Jesus was also not just angry, but he was moved by, to tears, in fact, by the grief of those who were suffering that he loved. If you look at verse 35, very clearly, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The same sin, death, and unbelief that, promised, uh, that, prom that prompted Jesus' anger in this situation also prompted him toward grief. And in contrast to the Jews who were grieving in this situation, the word used for their grieving was almost like a, a desperate wailing. And that was very common during that time. In fact, they would hire professional criers to come to funerals to, 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 to wail and to cry in these moments, which seems very odd to us. But the word that is used for Jesus weeping is not the same word that's used for the other people. Jesus weeping was more of a, uh, just a, a soft reaction to the situation, not a, necessarily an a overflowing of tears, but just tears flowing into his eyes as he looked and as he experienced the emotion of, the, of these loved ones who had passed away, this loved one who passed away, and the loved ones who were grieving Lazarus' death. And so Jesus wept. So Jesus was anger, angry, and Jesus wept. And so this emphasizes Jesus' humanity, but it also reveals to us the heart of God, not the heart of the gods of the day, the gods of the Greeks, the gods of the Gentiles, who thought that this was a stoic God who really was distant and didn't care, Jesus revealed that God cares, and God loves, and God not only cares and loves, but he weeps with us. And as followers of Jesus, we need to learn from Jesus in this situation, how to balance this anger that we have towards sin and the brokenness of this world, but also 
just a sincere grief over sin that happens in our world and the results of sin that happen in our, happens in our world. In the book of Titus, Paul writes to a church that was established on the island of Crete, which is an island in the Mediterranean. Paul went there, he preached, he planted a church. And in fact, in Titus chapter 1, Paul quotes someone famous from that island, and he says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. The Apostle Paul, in Scripture, quotes that. He says, these people are liars, they're evil brutes, they're lazy gluttons. And in fact, these people from the island of Crete had such a bad reputation that the word Cretize was used in their vernacular to mean lie. It was a synonym for lying. And so get the picture here. Paul establishes this church on this place that's just this awful place. It's this evil place. People are disrespectful, lying. There's no trust. It's just so anti-God in everything. Yet, if we flip over to Titus chapter 3, I encourage you to read this on your own, verses 1 through 11, Paul told Titus to remind the Christians of Crete to be obedient to the rulers and ready to do every good deed. All right? Here they are being led by liars and evil people, and Paul says, you need to obey your rulers and be ready for every good deed. They were to have attitudes of humility and hearts that focused on respect, kindness, love, and mercy toward all people. And Paul specifically warned them to be careful to neither malign nor to be contentious in any way. So he cautioned them to avoid foolish controversies, strife, and disputes because they're unprofitable and they're just worthless. They accomplish nothing for the kingdom. So he encourages gentleness and consideration for all people. As we're forced to work through cultural issues in our day, and as we're forced to obey government rulers and respect government rulers that are a lot like maybe, in your mind, the Cretans who are liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons, I think Paul's words are applicable for us today. And it's very difficult, right? I'll be the first to admit, it's very, very difficult to know how to apply Scripture always in every situation. But I want to give you some general observations from this passage and from Scripture that may be helpful as we try to live in a way that balances grief over sin and anger over sin and the results of sin in our lives. Jesus made it clear, we must love all people, including our enemies. Love your enemies. Not just love them, pray for them. We also must be careful not to make moral values as important as the gospel. That, that others, people, if you keep morals and values, okay, they're good, but we fail to see that the gospel is first and foremost what they need. And we can elevate values higher than the gospel. And if holy living, which it is, be honest with yourself, okay, for a second, if, if living in a way that's holy is difficult enough for those of us who are believers who have the Holy Spirit, all right, I won't to ask you to raise your hand, but who struggled with sin this week, all right? Every hand should go up that you struggle with sin. We've been redeemed. We have the Holy Spirit. 
But sometimes we can expect those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who are still part of the kingdom of darkness, Satan is their ruler, we kind of expect them to maintain the same values and morals that we oftentimes fail to achieve ourselves. And we often expect more from the government, which is a worldly system, than we should. And so we must fight against the kingdom of darkness as Paul's telling the Christians in the, on the island of Crete, but we don't demonize those who oppose us. So we fight the kingdom of darkness. We understand that Satan is behind all this evil, ultimately, that's happening in our life, in our world, in our culture, but we don't demonize those who oppose us. So as Jesus followers, we have to learn the balance of anger over sin and the grief and sorrow over the impact of sin on those who need the gospel. And Jesus strikes that perfect balance, and we see it even as he attends the funeral, as he goes to the graveside of somebody he loves. Because here's what can happen. If we have grief and compassion, and we see this in our world, with no anger about the sin that's being committed, what ends up happening inevitably, we go down a road that ends in just tolerance, accepting everything. We just allow, you know, oh, I just, I just love people. You know, I, I just love them, you know, and I just want to be, show kindness. I'm just not the type of person who points out sin. I just want to smile and tell you how good God is, right? And we have people in our culture and leaders in our culture and preachers in our culture who take that standpoint. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is angry, angry against sin and against the result of sin, which is death. But we got to be careful also because outrage without grief over sin and without grief over those who need the gospel, it turns into self-righteousness, arrogance, and unrighteous anger. And it allows us to become somebody who does not represent Jesus Christ to this culture at all. And so be careful as we process our emotions in the day and age where we live. Make sure that your anger is really anger at sin and anger at what the devil is doing to blind the eyes of those who don't believe the gospel so that they chase after other things and never see Jesus in his glory and his goodness. And they never, like us, can look at Jesus with faces that aren't veiled, that faces that aren't covered. We can behold his glory, his majesty, his greatness, and his goodness, and we're being transformed into his likeness from one degree to another. That's us. That's Jesus' followers. And so we represent Jesus in a way that's accurate. We represent God in this beautiful balance of mercy and compassion and also hatred for sin and anger towards sin. You recall on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke some very, very difficult words, words that we still struggle to make sense of today. And one thing that he stated in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, I seriously doubt in the crowd that Jesus was speaking to, there were very many actual murderers there, all right? There probably wasn't a whole lot of people who actually had killed someone. But Jesus goes deeper down to the heart level. The next verse, verse 22, Jesus says this, But I say to you that everyone who is angry 
with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so this, this issue of anger, anger is a tricky topic. And the Bible does speak of having righteous anger. And if we desire to be a light to this world and live in the way that Jesus lived, it's not simply enough just not killing people, okay? Like, you don't kill somebody, good for you, right? You obey the law. But Jesus goes deeper and he says, unrighteous anger and insulting others also spreads darkness and it's in opposition to the light. So just like murder is in opposition to the light and to the kingdom, unrighteous anger is also, it also spreads darkness and it's in opposition to the light. So in our culture is growing hostility toward Christianity and the rejection of God's moral law. Many Christians have become very hateful, spiteful, and angry. And other Christians have become just tolerant, just whatever goes, goes. As followers of Jesus and ambassadors for the gospel, we can't allow that to happen, either one of those extremes. Look at verse 36 back in our text again. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind, the one who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And then verse 38, we see this again, the exact same emotion, this anger. Then Jesus deeply moved again, he came to the tomb. So deeply moved, same word as in verse 33, outrage, anger, indignation, he comes to the tomb. This word is actually used for the, the, the snort of a horse as it goes into battle. At the battle, a horse is ready for battle, a rider is on it, he's going into battle. That's the word that is used for Jesus being deeply moved in this situation. So he, he's angry, he's emotional, but he not only is angry and emotional about it, but he, he does something about it. He steps in this moment and he reveals to us a great picture of the gospel that is to come through his own death and resurrection because Jesus had just told them a few minutes earlier that he's the resurrection and the life. Now Jesus is standing literally at the tomb of Lazarus and he's going to do something about this sin, death, and the doubts that are existing in that crowd. He's going to make a difference. He's going to do something about it. And I love that what John Calvin wrote. He says, Christ does not come to the tomb as an idle spectator, but like a fighter prepared for a contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again for the violent tyranny of death, which he, has, he is about to overcome, stands before his eyes. So Jesus sees the impact of death and destruction. And he knows ahead he will face his own death and the reason that he had to come to earth in the first place because of sin and our separation from God. But Jesus does something about it. Verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out. And so the irony of this situation is that Jesus gives life to Lazarus, but at this point, he literally sets in motion his own death because we're going to see in, John, in the Gospel of John, it takes this turn, and the Jews, as I pointed out last week, they're done, all right? They're done. This is it. They're going to bring Jesus to his knees. They're going to kill Jesus. That's their whole agenda and goal, but Jesus gives life, but he sets in motion his own death, 
And in a few chapters, we'll read about another resurrection. As incredible and as amazing as this one is, the next one is going to be much, much bigger and much, much greater. And I like what Matt Carter says. He says, if this is the first blow, the next next resurrection is the knockout punch. Jesus is the resurrection, and Jesus is the life. Jesus provides life to us. And I think the picture of Lazarus, what happened to Lazarus physically, happens to you spiritually, can happen to us spiritually. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you don't know him, you can experience spiritual resurrection today. Jesus said back in chapter 5, verse 25 of John, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus is life. Spiritual life provides the forgiveness of sin and it brings us back to God. Jesus proved his power over death by raising Lazarus. In a few chapters, we're going to see his total power by raising himself from the grave. What a beautiful picture. So here's our challenge. We need to remember, as Ephesians 5, 1 and 5 says, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy. But God, being rich in mercy. Do you truly, truly believe, those of you who put your faith in Jesus, that you're undeserving, as the song we just sang, that that God came for you because you could not come for him? That he came with his mercy because you had no ability. You were dead, and dead people can't do anything. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And what a great reminder for those who sometimes in your anger at sin do a lot of collateral damage to the very people that we're called to be ambassadors to and minister to. And we think because we hide behind a computer or it's just our political beliefs that we think that it really doesn't get to the people and so we don't harm our testimony. But what we do, we create a reputation for ourselves and for this version of Christianity that's becoming so prevalent in our nation. So Jesus is the perfect balance of righteous outrage against sin and the results of sin, which is death, and the tender mercy that he expressed when he came for you and for me when we did not deserve it, that we were destined and dead for hell, dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. And so as Jesus followers, remember, you're his ambassador. You're the face of Jesus to this world, and you represent another world, even as you and I, we live and we do business, and we have to operate in the world system for the temporary time as sojourners, as Scripture says, foreigners and aliens. This world is not our home. Let's make sure we don't get too attached to the systems of this world where it just drives us crazy, we're just angry all the time at culture, we've erred way too far. Or if you're on the other side, All you want to do is just show compassion, and there's no standing strong against sin. There's really, in your mind, there's there's no issue against sin. 
You failed to see that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You've forgotten that your sin separates you from a holy God. And Jesus came so that you could know God and have a relationship with God because sin has separated you. And so this balance that exists. Let's be good ambassadors to Jesus. There's not a one-size-fits-all where we can walk through every issue that's in our culture today and say, okay, here's how you apply it, here's how you apply it. You have the Holy Spirit in your heart. Are you meeting with Jesus face-to-face every day for the strength, the wisdom to go out and navigate in this world and live in this world that balance? You don't have a chance, all right? You don't have a chance if you're not meeting with Jesus and seeing him face to face with that face unveiled and you're, you're receiving his radiance, his glory into your life and then you walk out and you shine that in an imperfect way in this culture. And if you're not meeting with Jesus, let's be careful because anger probably or tolerance is probably going to not be in balance in any way, shape or form. So meet with Jesus, know Jesus, remember you're dead in your sins and then be an ambassador for Jesus by the wisdom that he gives us through his Holy Spirit that lives in you. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you will just allow us as those who have dual citizenships in some way, we are definitely, we have to operate in this world. And as Jeremiah told us to the people who were in Babylon, that they had to operate and live in the city and even work for the good of the society. God, help us to remember as we work in this world and live in this world, that this world truly, legitimately is not our home, and that we don't have to fear the death because that it's in front of us, because the death will just take us into your presence, into your kingdom, where we can know you and, and, and experience you face to face, and we have no fear in death at all. And God, we thank you for that, those promises. We thank you that you're working in our life, and you're sovereign over our nation, our world, and the situations that we face each and every day. And God, I pray you'll help us to not be fearful and not live like those who don't know you, who live in fear and anger and resentment, but help us to live with joy and victory, even as we strike that balance between tender mercy and care and anger over the sin and destruction that's in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.